Are you ready to jump into some true crime docs, crime thrillers, and more? Check out our website for an extensive list of our favorite movies and shows at thesirenspodcast.com slash watch, and find our favorite true crime and thriller books and authors, some covered on the show, at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. You can even find special deals for Amazon Music, Audible, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and even Grubhub. If you're looking to jump in immediately, check out our pinned Facebook post for some streaming service free trials on us. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. Yes. Oh, thank yeah. you. I appreciate you read them. We've These? got yeah, we got me? two of them. Yeah, those oh, are yours right there. You kidding me? Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, we got um, we got NYPD through the Looking Glass and Dickheads and Debauchery, which is my favorite, by the way. Personal <laughs> favorite, Dickheads and Debauchery. Personal favorite. This is Raven here, and today I have Rick with me and a special guest, Vic Ferrari. You were a retired. Um, NYPD detective, and you are an author, and we're going to talk about you today. It sounds great, and thank you both for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for being here. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your history? Like, as a okay. kid, what what did you, did you always want to be a police officer? Is that something that you always wanted to do? Yeah, I, I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City um, by about five years old six years old my grandfather broke his leg and two um, policemen brought him home in a snowstorm and i remember just like looking at them in those blue uniforms and of course every boy gravitates to the gun yeah and i said what do they eat you know it was it, it, i was fascinated and uh around the corner from the local movie theater when my mother would take my brother and i to the movies there was a police station and i would go by there and i would you know stick my face up against the police call windows looking inside looking at the nightsticks and their hats and I'd watch the cops in front of the precinct, like the way they interacted with each other and like the way they talk and they'd have their hand resting on the butt of their gun. And I'm saying, I want to be one of these guys, you know, growing up in the seventies, you know, it was, um, the French connection, the seven ups, the Rockford files. I knew what I wanted to do as a child by age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal the wanted posters off the wall. Oh, nice. These wanted posters for some guy wanted in a bank robbery in Kansas City. And we're walking around with these wanted posters, looking at people in the street like we were going to make an apprehension. <laughs> so I knew what I wanted to do. My parents really wanted me to go to college, and I really had no interest in that. And, you know, by the time I got out of high school, about two years later, I was in the police academy and, you know, enjoyed a 20 year career with the New York City Police Department. That is fantastic. That's dope. Let's talk about, did you always know you were going to write or did that just kind of happen? It kind of happened. I, I had no interest in writing. I never, it never gave it a second thought. 
And I retired relatively young. I, I did a 20-year career and I was like 41 years old and I really didn't know what to do with myself. And my friends used to, my friends that aren't in law enforcement used to say, oh my God, you've got like endless amount of these funny, crazy stories. You should write a book. And I said, no, you know, I, I don't know. And I, I'd never, you know, I never took creative writing or journalism. So, you know, I didn't have the training to do it. Another thing, I was always apprehensive about writing a book about my former career because I didn't want to get anybody in trouble and I didn't want to get anybody divorced. Right. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I also I, I don't you know, I don't I'm not one to focus on sour grapes. Yeah. In my books, I give somebody a kick in the ass from time to time. But before I wrote my NYPD books, I wrote Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. I took a stab at comedy. And that's just a book about the ridiculous things that people do to shorten their life expectancy, like running in the bulls in Spain. So it's just, it's just a book covering the stupidity and the things that people do to shorten their life expectancy. But that book didn't really sell. I thought it was funny and it really wasn't selling until I started writing the NYPD books. And it's almost like a cult movie. They say a, a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. Once I started out these NYPD books that do sell well, dickheads and debauchery started started selling. You say that you don't have any training in creative writing, but I submit that anybody wearing a badge is better than telling a story than anybody else on earth. We can tell stories like champions, my friend, and I loved that yeah. book, full of vivid imagery. I mean, look, the part where you talk about people driving and you talk about minivans, I know her. I know all of them. I've I've seen those people and I saw them. So don't sell yourself short. It's a good book. I loved it. It's, you know, growing up in the Bronx and both my parents were very sarcastic. So it bleeds through me. Like I, I almost have to have like a two second delay sometimes. There's something funny at the tip of my tongue that not everyone would think is funny. Like some people are going to burst out laughing and I could get a punch in the face or dirty look. So I definitely have to bite my tongue a lot of times. I think it's that dark first responder humor it might be it might be listen i read uh we have it i so. read a couple of your books while i was on the bus while i was riding around working and we work four 12-hour shifts down here that's what i do so we never leave the bus it's just non-stop 911 calls so it's me and my partner and we had two students so i got an audience of three reading your books and i would read them out loud and every time it got a laugh every time so I, I don't know if it's tailored to anybody, I mean, specifically, but I felt like it was for us. I loved it. My favorite was Dickheads and Debauchery. I read 100%. both of them, and, and it was still my favorite. My favorite is actually the Murder is Forever chapter. <laughs> There's a funny story behind how I got Murder is Forever. When I retired from the NYPD, I joined a small police department down here in Florida. And there was a civilian employee and her job was to, I guess, drive home the point to the cops in the police department about the seriousness of domestic violence. And I get it. I mean, it's not the old days. In the old days, the cops respond to your house. What happened? If the wife doesn't want to press charges in the good old bad days, the cops would leave. And then what would happen was the woman would either get battered or abused more or sometimes to the point where she was dead. So they changed the rules and they said, listen, you can't throw the guy out of the house anymore. If you even suspect she was hurt or injured, you got to lock the guy up. There's no telling somebody to leave for the night. I had had this training many, many times in the NYPD and I'm down at the small police department and I kept ducking this woman's class to the point where she made a point of it of making me sit through a class. 
And I guess to stress the point, because she didn't think I was taking it serious enough, but you only got to tell me something once. Yeah. And she got a face holding this paperwork and she goes, if they don't want to press charges, you tell them murder is forever. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's interesting. So my friend's wife embroidered shirts. So I got a black t-shirt with murder is forever embroidered in red flames on the shirt. And I started wearing it to work. I'm gonna need one of those. <laughs> Where do you get those fucking shirts? Like everybody wanted one, right? <laughs> the origin came back to, yeah, it's Ferrari that is selling these shirts, which she didn't think it was too funny. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a shame on her part because that's, I mean, that's amazing. Murder yeah, is for I, I need I need that shirt. And my favorite, I mean, straight out the gate in that uh, chapter, you say murder is an interactive way to die. And like in square dancing, you'll need a partner who is, in this case, willing to take your life. I love that. That's true. <laughs> it is. Uh, let's talk about... NYPD Lauren Disorder is the, is the uh, latest book that I, I wrote last year. I came out last uh, May. Lauren Disorder opens up with the chapter called Embarrassing Moments. And it... What I try to explain is most writers always like to paint themselves as the hero in a story. They have the witty comeback. They save the day in the nick of time. But the reality is we've all walked out of the bathroom with toilet paper on the back of our shoe or with our fly open. So we all look like a horse's ass from one time or another. So the opening chapter of that book is a couple of ridiculous, embarrassing things that happened to me. And it's the early 90s. My partner and I pull over this cab. In the back seat, there's three guys with four kilos of coke. Grab them, lock them up. I'm parading around the station house with four kilos of coke like I won the Stanley Cup. I'm all smiled. Yeah, everybody's coming by taking pictures. Can I take a picture with this? Blah, 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 blah. The cocaine gets packed up, goes to the lab. I have to go down to the Bronx District Attorney's Office that night to draw up the complaint. So I drive down there, I find parking, and the Bronx Courthouse, it's a shitty neighborhood, and after the lights go dark, there's nothing really open. Well, across the street from the courthouse, they had opened up this little shopping center with this brand new um, food court. So I'm like, this is great. I can get something to eat, and then I'll drop the arrest. I go into the food court. There's a little Italian restaurant. I order spaghetti and meatballs and a soda. I'm sitting there enjoying my food. I'm just like on top of the world. I'm just like, this is great. All my friends are going to be talking about this. And all of a sudden, my stomach goes. I'm like, oh, my God. i got to use the bathroom. Oh, no. Bathroom across the street. There's never even toilet paper. I'm like... Great. The food court, this new bathroom is going to be like a cathedral. I'm going to use this one. I'm in uniform. I go into the, I go into this bathroom. It's like, again, antiseptically clean. It's a cathedral. There's nobody in there. I go into the, I go into the stall. I, I, I shut the door. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook on the door. I drop my pants. I sit down. The next thing I know, the front door of the bathroom kicks open and I hear five or six teenagers and they're screaming, they're hitting hand dryers, they're putting the sink on. I'm like, oh shit, I don't need this. Yeah, I'm in uniform and I'm an NYPD cop, but my pants are down to my knees and all of a sudden it gets quiet. So I'm like, did they leave? Did they see the pair of legs under the stall and knock it off? I said, you know what? I got to get out of here. I got to finish up and go. Just as I go in to grab my pants, I look up. One of the kids went into the next stall. He jumped up on the toilet and he's hanging over my stall trying to grab my gun belt over the wall. So I jump up with one hand trying to pull up my pants. With the other hand, I grab him around the neck. So when I pull him, I pull him over the wall a little bit. And what do I do? I enable him to grab my gun belt. 
Now he's got my gun belt. So now I let go of my pants with my left and I start punching him in the face, right? And it's like a hockey fight. Like I'm just like pummeling the shit out of him. And I'm like, let go of the fucking gun, let go of the gun. His friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs, right? So now it's a tug of war over those like aluminum door walls, the partitions. I don't have to tell you those things aren't like solid hurricane proof. The thing buckled and I, let, I lost him because he was so sweaty. He went over the wall, but he did drop my gun belt. I reach down, I get my gun belt, I put my pants on, I, I get my uniform together, I run out, they're gone. I go into the food court, no one knows anything, they're all gone. So I go up to the porter, I go, you see a bunch of kids run out of here? He goes, nope. So now I'm like, like I write in the book, what am I supposed to do at this point? Should I call the police on myself? <laughs> if the, the responding cops are gonna show up, I'm gonna laugh, yeah, we might catch these kids, but the responding cops will show up, I'll be the laughing stock of the Bronx if I went that route. So in the book, sometimes it's just best to suck it up and move on with your life. And I didn't tell that story to anyone until I decided to write the opening thing of NYPD Law and Disorder. You'd have been on the news, man. Oh. Can you imagine? That's what we say down here. We say, uh, you were almost on the news. That's, <laughs> that's Definitely. When you listen to most of our episodes about like going back through cold cases or reviewing old files and things like that, do you hear things as an old cop that you're like, how did that happen? Like, and then you hear that, like, someone kicked a bullet casing under a bed and never thought about it twice after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, listen, I would like like to think that 95% of law enforcement is sharp and, you know, has the proper training and makes solid and sound decisions. But, like, take the New York City Police Department. I mean, we had, we, well, I, I've been out 15 years, but we had so much talent. But you're always going to have a couple of bozos, right? that just kind of screwed things up for anything else. Like in NYPD Through the Looking Glass, there's a story about a guy who moved a body. He moved a dead body. He was lazy. And he had a foot post in housing. I don't know, the super knows this old gentleman. Guy didn't have any family. The guy doesn't come to the door. The super knocks on the door. The super lets himself in. And the man, he's an elderly gentleman, expired in bed. And he hasn't been dead for too long. So the housing cop goes, he calls the EMTs, the EMTs show up, the Chardon shows up, they start the whole investigation. The guy's only been dead a couple hours. I don't even think he had rigor mortis yet. So in New York City, when you die in an apartment or inside a, a, a location or residence, the EMTs, you still got to wait for the medical examiner to arrive. And in New York, there's always people croaking and getting whacked. So the medical examiner, you could, it, we call it sitting on a DOA. The cop has to sit in that apartment with the dead person for hours until the medical examiner comes and goes, Dominus Robiscum, yeah, we, we're either going to take this body to go for an autopsy or have the family call the funeral home. It's their decision, right? You're going to appreciate this. The cop starts bargaining with the EMTs. He goes, can't you just take him? Take him to the hospital. They go, he's dead. Take a dead dude? They go, we can't move him unless he was in public view. And they leave. So this jerk off comes up with the bright idea, he waits about 20 minutes, he gets on the radio, he goes over the radio, he says he's got a cardiac at the same location. You son of a bitch. The same two EMTs come running, this is like 20 minutes to half hour later, come running up the stairs with all their equipment. This time, the old man's in the hallway. Now the cop now is horrified because he knows they know what he did. He dragged this man, this dead guy, out of the apartment and threw him in the hallway, right? So they go, what the fuck? And he goes, Dude, you're not gonna believe this. Uh, you guys left, I was doing my paperwork, he jumped up, he said, motherfucker, he ran through the apartment and he collapsed in the hallway. 
And they go, no, he didn't. Look at the way his body is. He's got rigor mortis. He's in the same position. You just turned him upside down, right? So the sergeant shows up, and now the sergeant knows this guy's a piece of shit. And he's like, so long story short, the guy got suspended. He lost 30 vacation days. He got put on a year probation, and he got transferred. But nowadays, forget it. He would have been fired. But that happened in the early 90s. That's in my book, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Oh, my Good goodness. Lord. What do you mean he died? He's got your fucking finger marks on him, dude. <laughs> exactly. That is insane. I believe it's in. It's also in Dickheads and Debauchery. But you have like a whole section about like what not to do, where not to go. And like this is what we like to drive to our listeners. Like things you should not be doing. Stop posting stuff on social media when you're gone. People are going to rob your house. Stuff like that. You have um, a saying in there that I thought was just crazy because we have a very similar saying. You say nothing good happens after 11 p.m. in your book. We say nothing good happens after midnight. All right, so let's put the difference. Say, let's say 11.30. Nothing good happens after 11.30. There you go. My dad told me that. I think if you read it, my dad told me that because my dad was still working. I was living at home. I was in my early 20s. I, I hadn't gotten an apartment yet. I was still living at home. And my dad was getting up at four o'clock in the morning and he'd see me coming through the door cockeyed with the car parked on the sidewalk. He goes, what are you, a fucking clown? He says, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. And he's right. And I mean, you know this being an EMT. You know, this, this much I know being a cop and a detective for 20 years. The day shift of cops are usually the lazier ones, the older guys that aren't looking for any problems. Those are the report takers. The four to 12 tend to be the more younger cops looking to handle the calls. They're, they're jumping on calls. Midnight is big game hunting because at midnight, all that's out there is cops, cabs, and criminals. That's the three things that are out there. And anybody floating around, you know, is, could be your next soon-to-be serial killer who's just out there, you know, bree- breezing around, looking at the buffet, looking at the sex workers. I mean, I'm sure his backpack's full of books. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Duct tape and a jar of Viagra. You drive around anywhere in Tulsa that you see an ambulance, cop cars, or fire trucks parked out at 1.30, we will all be outside the truck stretching because it's about to go down and we know it. Yeah, or any Waffle Hut between 2 and 5 a.m. It's Waffle House here. I have, (laughs) yeah, we have Waffle House, and I'm telling you right now, I have a series of dark PTSD memories centered around Waffle House. Oh, dude, you should write a book, too. (laughs) Your detective work was actually in auto crimes, right? Yeah. um, My last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division, which is under the Organized Crime Control Bureau. So we did everything from chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing of vehicle identification numbers for resale. If you ever saw the movie Heat with De Niro and Pacino, that's kind of what we did with cars. So we were heavily into the mafia. crews of guys that were stealing cars if they got into homicides well then we were we were piggybacking along for the ride so it it was an interesting unit to work in for 10 years what was your biggest bust that you can remember oh i had so many interesting cases i had everything from i had a diplomat driving around manhattan with a stolen uh with a stolen uh, mercedes from france uh, I worked on a case where we had Asian nationals that were exporting 30 stolen Audi A6s a month out of Brooklyn. I'll tell you that story. You had an ex 
well, I don't think he was X, but he was a Chinese military intelligence officer that was living in Brooklyn. And what he would he did was he met a middleman that was in the salvage yards in New York. Somehow these guys met and the Jamaican had steel crews of guys that were stealing for this Chinese guy. The Chinese guy rented a warehouse in Brooklyn. The stolen cars would go into the warehouse and what they would do is they'd put two stolen Audi A6 in a shipping container. They'd let the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower in the container. Then they built like a wooden frame above it so they could drive another two cars up. So they could, three to four cars would go in per container. Once once the containers were full with stolen vehicles, they were, they were trucked out to Newark, New Jersey where they were put on a train and they were railed out to Long Beach, California, where they were put on cargo ships for the, sent out to Shanghai. This was going on for months. It was a joint investigation between the NYPD and the Westchester County DA's office. So we had at least four or five phone taps on the Chinese nationals phones. And the NYPD is a 35 to 40,000 person department at any given time. We have Chinese cops. So we had seven or eight cops listening to phone calls in Mandarin and Cantonese. And what we quickly realized was in addition to stealing 30 cars a month, these guys were also in the murder for hire business. So you'd hear, well, you want to wind up like that guy in Connecticut? You want to wind up like that guy in New Jersey? So then we started putting together, these guys were doing hits for hire. In addition to, they were, they were going out of state and they were, um, Hitting like they were hitting Harley Davidson uh, dealerships over the weekend. Like they hit a, a Harley Davidson dealership. I think it was in Woodbridge, Virginia. They, like they emptied the place out. They went down there with a couple of U-Haul trucks, did a commercial burglary over the over a holiday weekend, and brought all the shit back to New York where they were selling it piecemeal. And these guys were into everything. Um, when the case came down, I think we solved about thirteen homicides. We put a dent in the in this you know in the cars going out to China. Holy cow. When was it this happened? I think we took that case down in 2000. I think that's legend status, buddy. That's a fucking movie. You want to hear about one of the homicides? So wait, there's, a, there's another facet to this story. So one of the homicides was, so two of our thieves were involved in a homicide in Connecticut. So fast forward 10 years before this, three guys, this, I'm trying to remember this the best I can. And if a defense attorney is listening and he's going to try to get his guy out, this wasn't my case. I was like the tambourine player on this case. It did a lot of surveillance. So if I get the facts and circumstances wrong, this isn't going to get your guy out of jail. I'm trying to remember something from 20 years ago. But anyway, from what I remember, there were three guys in Connecticut knocking over banks and armored cars. One guy got caught and he didn't rat on the other two and he got like six or seven years in the can. While he was in jail, the two guys that got away took their money and they invested it into the drug business and they were running like, I think it was Hartford or Woodbury, Connecticut. Those were the guys to see moving weight up there, like heroin and, and Coke. If you wanted to buy a kilo, they were the guys. So anyway, when their friend got out of jail, he wanted to be uh, a third party. He said, well, listen, I did my time. I didn't rat you guys out. You guys are big and established now. I want what's mine. So they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they patted him on the head go kill this guy, go pick up a kilo, go beat this guy up. They were kind of treating him like a lackey. Well, this guy wasn't somebody to be toyed with. So what he did, what did was he kidnapped one of their couriers and put him in the trunk of his car for a weekend, beat his ass, took his kilos and sent him back and said, tell those two fucking guys, I'm not kidding around. Next time it's going to be ugly. Well, he's got to go. So what those two guys did was they took the victim that was beat up and they said, go to the Bronx, get a couple of hitters, send them up here. We'll give them five or 10 grand a piece. So 
to whack this guy. And that's what they did. They followed the guy around. They got his routine down. And what they did was they rode up to him as he sat in his car in a light on the back of a motorcycle. Guy riding on the back of the bike emptied a Glock into him, hit him like 11 out of 14 times. They drive off. The motorcycle goes into a U-Haul truck. So while everyone's looking for this motorcycle, the U-Haul truck goes back down I-95 to the Bronx where I think they chopped or tagged the bike, got rid of it through the gun in the river. But when we took down this case, we knew the main thief. He was the getaway driver in so many homicides. He was going to go away too. So he started talking immediately because he was like, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you think I'm bad. This fucking guy is way worse. No. And, you know, I think he got about 10 years He's out now, but the main guy in that case, I think he was convicted of six or seven homicides, but the, the body count is like 13 or 14 that we know of. Holy cow. I'm wondering, like, how do you deal with, like, jurisdictional questions? Like, what's the protocol on following someone across the country with all these stolen vehicles? The cars were being stolen in the, in the greater New York City area. It was The cars were being stolen in the five boroughs in Westchester County. Sometimes they'd hit a dealership in New Jersey. But the cars were coming to Brooklyn. So what we did was we had cameras on the place. So we knew by the phones that when the cars were getting stolen. We knew by the phones when the cars were going into the place. We had cameras outside the place so we could get the shipping container numbers, right? So we knew the shipping container numbers. So we notified customs. But... In the, in the early stages of the case, before we had it locked down, we had to let a couple of containers go. You know what I mean? Because we wanted to figure out, are there more people involved? Are there more homicides? Yeah, it's great. We're getting these cars. But if you go and pull those cars quick and those cars don't make it in Shanghai, they're going to know something's up. So I think for, if memory serves me correctly, a couple of containers went out. But when we took the case down, a couple of containers were on ships, wound up coming back. You know what I mean? Like they went to their destination, but remained on the ship and came back. But, um, oh yeah, that, that was a wild case. I mean, there's so many stories from that case. Another time the main thief came, they were short for the month and they came up with this idea they were going to get 10 cars or 12 cars in one shot. So the main thief used to be a, a garage attendant in this um, parking garage on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, right off the FDR Drive. So what he did was he knew another parking attendant there. So we went to him. He goes, this is what we're going to do. He goes, I'm going to come in here with 10 of my friends on Wednesday night. I'm going to give you two grand. We're going to tie you up and put you in the trunk of the car. We're going to take the keys. We're going to take off. You stay in the trunk for about a half hour, then start making a lot of noise. When the cops come, you just say we're wearing ski masks. You didn't get a good look at anybody. We watched the whole thing. The last car was in Brooklyn in the warehouse when the 911 call came over when when the parking attendant started telling his bullshit story to the precinct cop. Like you're finding out about all these murders and then and you said one was in Cleveland. It's like, what do you do? Do you call down to Cleveland and be like, hey, I think we got a murder possibly in that area? It was Connecticut actually. And we started calling up different police departments. Like you got any unsolved homicides with guys on motorcycles? You know what I mean? We just were on a fishing expedition and then we saw, well, wait, you know, and then you start going off of phone records, you know, during the time of the homicide, this guy was calling, I forget what a Bridgeport, I forget what city it was. He's calling that town. You know what I mean? And then you start going into, you know, credit cards and yeah, this guy was up there that whole time. And that's how we were able to piece everything together. That is so wild. We got a strict first responder rule around here where we don't ask 
what your worst case was, because we just know better than that. Um, so we usually ask, what was your superhero case? The one that made you feel like you were absolutely invincible. You were the baddest motherfucker <laughs> of all time. You're walking through, high-fiving everybody. You're going to take tomorrow off. Like you, the city is grateful that you even showed up today. <laughs> when I was a rookie cop, I had maybe a year or two in, and I was working with this guy who was pretty active, but he had a big mouth. And, uh, you know, he's, I, I got stuck working with the NYPD. If you're the new guy, you really don't have a say who you're working with. It's almost like going into prison for your first couple of weeks. Like, you don't know what's going on and people are ordering you around. I got stuck working with this guy. And, you know, he's telling me how great he is and everything. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I saw I saw a gypsy cab driving around erratically. And I said, Pull, you know, I just like, blew that light. I forget what he did. Didn't make a turn or it, it went through a light. I forget. It's 30 years ago. And I go, pull that car over. He goes, eh, take it easy, rookie. I go, no, no, let's just stop this cab. Well, we pull the cab over and you got a nervous 16-year-old back there and he's putting in Mac 10 fully automatic machine gun in a shopping bag. To me, I felt so, um, Mama Luke was telling me, nah, you don't know what you're doing, you know what you're talking about. And I wound up pulling out a fully automatic machine pistol out of the back seat of a cab. So very early in my career, you know, I, I knew I had an eye for things. So all of these these stories that you have in your uh, in your books, how do you go about writing that stuff down? Does it just come to you and then you got to go write it down real quick, or do you sit and you try to think of this stuff? How what's the process? Like right now, I'm finishing a book right that has nothing to do with the New York City Police Department, but I. Get ideas. Sometimes I'll see something on television and it will remind me of something and I'll go, that would make a really good story. So what I do is I have a file on my computer. I call it the boneyard and I just write a little blurb and I'll come back to that. And my writing process goes like this. So I'm going to write a police book full of funny stories. I'll start writing a story and I'll get as far as I can with it. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to leave this alone. I'm going to go to another story. And I just keep bouncing around until I grow it, grow it, grow it, grow it, grow it until I have enough content. And then like, like I'm doing now with this latest book I'm working on, now I'm starting to flush it out and I'm editing it before I send it off for a professional edit. How do you celebrate when you finish a book? Funny, you ever seen the movie Misery? <laughs> yes. You know, it, it, it's, you know, like Paul Sheldon. I remember like, a woman that holds him captive, like she knew his routine. You always smoke one cigarette, and you have, you know what I mean. Like I try to get my books out by the end of spring, like the end of May. I try for me. I always, for whatever reason, it feels good just to get rid of that book, get it off, get it off my shoulders. Because once I'm done with a book, I'll never read it again because I know it backwards and forwards, and I know if I go back to one of my books, it's going to kill me that I could have added something. I just, I don't know, it's just this time of year I enjoy releasing a book. I, I really don't, it just feels good for me, like getting the book cover done and then going back and forth with a round of edits with the editor. And so, I mean, I enjoy this. It's very stressful for me because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I actually celebrate, you know what, but maybe I will. Hey, you should. A good, uh, you know, a uh, good cigar, good steak, maybe. You know, my father, instead of playing hide and go seek as a kid, we used to play hide and go meet. 
My dad, my dad would come home. With the pork chops and shit stuck to his chest. Amazing. There's, more that, there's actually more to that story. I mean, it was just too much to get into. But th that story was, I was about eight years old. And there was a kid on my Little League team. My father knew the kid's father. But I could, I, even at eight, I could tell my father didn't like the guy. I just, I could tell. And I go, Dad, why don't you like Mr. So-and-so? No, no, no. So years, when I was an adult, I go, Dad, why didn't you like Mr. So-and-so? And he goes, he's a hypocrite. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, in the butcher shop they worked in, they used to get a break on the meat. Like they would get like, a, it was supposed to be, they were supposed to get a discount. And this guy would never give them a, a discount. My father couldn't figure it out why. Well, what the guy was doing was, my father always noticed that this guy waited for everybody to leave and he never got dressed. So my father decided to leave for the day, waited 10 minutes, he walked back in and the guy was taping steaks and pork chops to his chest. So what that guy was doing was he was stealing their discount. So what he was doing was they were supposed to get 25% off or whatever they were supposed to get. He wouldn't give that to him because he was stealing, right? So my father goes, well, now you got a partner. So then the two of them were taping steaks to their chest and coming home. That's why I said it was like hide and go meet. My father would come home and my mother's pulling off his sweatshirts and this package of the steaks falling off. Oh my God. Hey, you gotta goodness. do what you gotta do. Long time ago. <laughs> oh my goodness. Vic, uh, let's talk about this newest book. Let's talk about the one that you're wrapping up right now. For you said it has nothing to do with the NYPD, right? So how is this one different than your other books? Uh, this book is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's about, it's about growing up in the Bronx and me going to Catholic high school and how I didn't want to go. I mean, yeah, we were Catholic, but my first eight years I went to public school. And the next thing I know, my father's telling me, you're going to Catholic high school. And I was like, why? And he goes, because you're a clown. And if you go to public school, you're going to grow up to be a bigger clown. You're going to Catholic high school. And it just, there's a lot. I mean, I wasn't abused or anything. It was... It, Catholic high school in the New York City Police Department are probably the best things that ever happened to me. And I'm not a practicing Catholic. I mean, I am Catholic, but I don't go to mass. Or I mean, I celebrate the holidays, obviously. But, you know, I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic. But it's just the funny stories of detention and summer school and just, you know, teenage awkwardness. And my mother taking me for clothing shopping. And I got this pushy 60-something-year-old saleswoman with her hands down my pants, adjusting my nutsack, going, yeah, he could fit into these. You know, so it's just it's just stories about my childhood and growing up in the Bronx. Really looking forward to it. If they were going to make your book into a movie, who plays Vic? Who plays Vic now or who plays Vic circa at 20 years old? At the oh, height. Yeah, at no, the yeah, height. at 20. Yeah. yeah. Who plays Vic in his prime? That's who I want to know. That's a really good, you know, if this was 30 years ago, I'd say De Niro or Gary Oldman. I think Gary Oldman's a good pick, though. Yeah. I mean, that guy was, he could seize everything. He could be Oh, anything. yeah, he can do anything. He can do anything. Yeah. Gary Oldman's so good, you're watching a movie and you're like, who is this guy? And it's Gary Oldman. I, I, it took me so long to figure out he was in the fifth element. Zog. Yeah, I've seen him, I've watched that movie 55 times. I mean, and it was not until like six years ago that I was like, hold on. That's fucking Gary Oldman. What is your favorite cop movie? Oh, I, I have two. It's um The French Connection, which is a 1971 movie by William Fre Freakin, who was an excellent director. And The Seven Ups. 
which is a little known movie, but it's about a bunch of cops in the New York City Police Department. Um, it was actually fil- it was actually produced by the by the detective that was involved in the French Connection. Great movie, Roy Scheider, um, Tony Lobianco. Great gritty. It's got a the car chase scene in the Seven Ups is on par with the French Connection. It's that good. I'm going to have to put that one on my list. It's on the list. It's, it's on, on the list. list. My new book that'll be out next month is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate by Vic Ferrari. The book opens up with me getting chased out of a confessional, which really did happen. It's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start. It's <laughs> a good start, yeah. You're listening to the Sirens Podcast with our special guest today, Vic Ferrari. We have been discussing his books and for in, any information that you need on any of the authors that we have on our, our show, you can always go to the website www.thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley where you can find links to all of their books as well as a short bio and where else to find them thank you so much Vic for being with us today this was a blast thank you so much and thank you listeners for continued listening and supporting us we'll catch you next time on the sirens podcast Thanks for listening to this episode of Ravens Reviews. Catch more next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?